Welcome to this episode of the Business of Practice podcast, where we focus on the financial and human sides of equine veterinary medicine. In this episode, we are talking about ethical challenges of veterinary practice with Barb Crab DVM. Dr. Crab is the owner of Pacific Crest Sport Horse Veterinary Practice in Portland, Oregon. Her veterinary interests are management of the performance horse in competition and reproductive technologies. She lives on the Pacific Crest Sport Horse property with her husband, Bob, who is a board-certified veterinary internist, and her two daughters, Katie and Jamie. Dr. Crabb is currently involved in a master's program in bioethics at the Neiswanger Institute for Bioethics at Loyola University in Chicago. The Business of Practice podcast is brought to you by Decra Veterinary Products. Thank you, Dr. Crabb, for joining us on the Business of Practice podcast to talk about ethical challenges of veterinary practice. Yeah, thank you so much for inviting me. I'm really excited. This is a topic that I'm just super passionate about, so I'm looking forward to sharing some things. Well, I know you're working on a master's in bioethics. Can you explain what bioethics is? Yeah, um, so so bioethics, um, I mean, it's it's a really much broader ranging area, I guess, than I even realized before I started this program. Um, but it, it deals primarily um, with ethical challenges in medicine. Um, and so just to give some examples, and, and the, the program that I'm involved in is actually a human-based program because the field of bioethics is really pretty well established in human medicine. Um, although it's considered sort of new, there are a lot of um, really established techniques for working through ethical dilemmas in practice um, with clinical cases. Um, this semester, I'm taking a course um, of bioethics and the law, learning about all the landmark cases with, you know, really issues like abortion, um, public health concerns, a lot about the whole COVID thing. So um, it's a pretty wide ranging field um, and just a lot of super interesting stuff. Okay, so let's bring this into veterinary practice. So can you maybe talk about some examples of ethical challenges that an equine might face on a daily basis? And that could be either with your own staff or bosses or associates or with clients. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, the, I think there are so many just small ethical decisions that we make every day that we don't even realize. Um, and I, I guess I'll give you an example of an issue that I think is probably the one of the main things we deal with in equine practice, um, which is the issue of who's making the decisions and on what basis they're doing so for the patients. Um, so in, in human bioethics, we look at one of the really kind of popular or the most used systems, I guess, is the four principles approach and the principle of autonomy is something that's really discussed a lot. And what autonomy means um, in, on the human side is that every patient has the right to make their own decisions regarding their healthcare. Um, so when you have a patient who's incapacitated or who can't make their own decisions, then you go through, through a tree of who makes those decisions for them. Um, and that becomes a surrogate decision maker. Um, and a surrogate decision maker is expected to first make their decisions based on what we call a substituted judgment standard, which is what they think the patient would choose. And then the second 
layer down is making decisions based on the best interest of the patient in, in the surrogate's opinion. So I think it's interesting in veterinary medicine that we skip all of that. We skip A, B, and C, and we go right to D. So every decision that's made is um, based on a surrogate decision maker who should be making decisions for the best interest of the patient. Um, and, you know, that makes it really important who that surrogate decision maker should be. Um, and the reason I bring this up is because I think a lot of times, particularly in our high level performance barns, that decision maker becomes the trainer, where really the decision maker should probably be the owner. Um, and I think that is an ethical issue that equine veterinarians come up against every day, sometimes without even realizing it. So that's just, I think, a really good example. Um, another thing that you and I kind of touched on that I think is worth bringing up um, that I've been looking at a lot lately with the uh, the recent kind of news about suicide in veterinarians and why we're seeing all of that. Um, one of the things, again, because the patients can't make decisions for themselves, so we're having to, sometimes we're having to make decisions or do things that morally or ethically don't feel right to us, which is a situation that we call moral distress. Um, and I think that this sort of underlying current of, of moral distress that we come up against in day-to-day -day practice is a big contributor to, to why veterinarians are experiencing such kind of mental anguish in their jobs. And that kind of moral distress, I have heard and, and read and been in talks about moral distress that, you know, one of them is that the horse could be treated but the owner can't afford the treatment. So then there's kind of the dual, the veterinarian wants to do what's best for the horse, but also has to make a living and has to pay the bills. The owner can't afford to do what is right for the horse and then blames the veterinarian. So how do veterinarians deal with situations like this? Yeah, that's a, I mean, that is a great example, and those are exactly the kinds of things that we're talking about. Um, and, you know, financial, the financial side that we have to deal with, it's different a little bit than the human side. Um, that's huge. Um, I can give you an example of, of how some practices deal with that, that I think at, this is outside of equine. It's a little harder in equine. But um, in my husband's small animal practice, if they had an animal that came in that needed a, some kind of a simple surgery that the owner couldn't afford, they um, would try to get the owner to relinquish control of the animal to the practice. They would do the surgery um, and then they would adopt the animal out. So, you know, there are things that you can do to help overcome that. Um, it, it's a little harder in equine practice, but I certainly, I mean, in situations where I, I have to euthanize a horse or an owner is requesting that I euthanize a horse that I just feel is the wrong thing to do, I'll do everything that I can to try to find another alternative for that horse, whether it be, you know, finding someone who's willing to take on the horse for the cost of the vet bills or, you know, donation to a program that might do something for them. But the, yeah, that's huge. It's a huge problem. And the financial side is just, I don't know, I'll tell you, the more I've done, the more I learn, the more I do, the more sometimes these problems just seem completely insurmountable. Like what is the answer? I don't know. Actually, I can give you another one. I can really get on a roll with this. No, that's good. <laughs> um, so this came up actually at a recent AVMA meeting 
um, a sit- and this happened, at, I had an incident of this just this week, a situation where um, it, for emergencies in equine practice. So the, the question being, if you have an emergency call from a client who's a non-client, are you ethically sort of, res- do you have an ethical responsibility to take care of that animal? Um, and, and it can get really hard. I mean, we, in our practice, um, we're in an area where a lot of the practices have now made a decision not to do their own emergencies. Um, and we, so we get a lot of, of non-client emergencies. Um, and, and frankly, there's the issue of scarce resources too. I mean, one vet can only do so much. So I had a situation just the other day where someone called, they weren't our client. They had a down horse. They really needed help. We have three vets in our practice. We were all out doing something else. And we, there was really nothing we could do about it. And I spent the day, you know, feeling terrible and worrying about that horse because I do feel that ethically I should do something to help take care of it. I think we experience that kind of thing all the time. Um, at the end of that story is that by the end of the day, we were able to get out there and help her. Um, but there was a big delay and it just didn't feel right. But what do you do? Yeah. And I know that there are other situations when we talk about, while we're talking about clients, there's other situations with clients where they ask a veterinarian, and it could be the owner or a trainer, to do something that the veterinarian is is not comfortable with. And in an area where there's multiple vets, it's like, well, I can call Dr. So-and-so and they'll do that for me. So how do veterinarians deal personally and professionally with those kind of situations? Yeah. I mean, to me, that as an individual veterinarian, that's very clear. You need to decide where you stand and you need to be willing to say no. And I mean, I've, I've been in practice for a long enough time and I have definitely lost clients for not doing things that I didn't feel right about. But you know what? Those weren't the clients that I wanted to work for. And so I'm okay with that. And I think that's something that we all need to just accept. The clients will sort themselves out. And if you want to be an ethical veterinarian and you want to do the right thing and you refuse to do something that you really feel is not the right thing to do, then you're going to sleep at night and other clients are going to come in and fill that gap. Um, Where that becomes really difficult and what I think we need to work on is the younger associates who are in practice who are asked to do something that, you know, they're boss quote does all the time that they don't feel is ethically or morally the correct thing to do. Um, and you know, that I, I really, my heart goes out to people who find themselves in that situation. And I guess I'd say, if you want to be an ethical veterinarian and you want to do the right thing, um, I hope that the older practice owners will be start to see that and start to support that. Um, but if they don't, is that a practice that you really want to work in? And there may be a better situation for you somewhere else. Right. I mean, there, there's a demand for equine practitioners across the country. So I know it's hard sometimes to pull up stakes. And sometimes it's easier to go work at the local small animal hospital than it is yeah. your family and kids and so forth to another place in the country. But, I mean, we're, we're seeing that happen with equine veterinarians, especially the younger ones. Another situation that had been mentioned um, in a talk about this was uh, the associates who are out and they come across a client who is a client of the practice 
who can't afford to pay and they have no, you know, they, they have to treat the animal. That's what they were called out to do. But then the office, the, they make the decision that, well, that associate's not going to get paid for that because we got paid less or not at all from that client. But the, but the associate didn't feel like they had the ability to say, well, if you can't pay, I'm not going to treat the horse or here are other options. So for our younger veterinarians who are listening, how do you handle some of the situations? We talked earlier about sometimes the financial side of veterinary medicine really can tie the hands of being able to practice. Yes, for sure. Um, you know, all of these changes are going to come about slowly. <laughs> it's not going to change overnight. I think that's something that we have to realize. And I think that um, compensation to veterinarians, that's a really interesting point because we've all grown up in the business model, or most of us, or I certainly did, where um, commission-based pay is, is how most things are structured. There's a base salary with commission and you know you get paid based on the work you do. And if your contract says you don't get paid, if the practice doesn't get paid, then you don't. Um, and that's how my associates are paid, although I pay them if the practice doesn't pay us, they still get paid. But, um, and I've talked to them about this. Honestly, I think compensation based on production is probably not the best, most ethical way to handle a business with, yeah, I think that needs to be phased out if we're looking at ethical concerns. So if you have an associate on a salary, then they're not making decisions based on finances. Because you should never have to make medical decisions or care decisions for a patient based on finances. And yeah, that's easy to say in a human medical model where they're, you know, being paid by the insurance company. But we can do that in veterinary medicine. We just have to figure out how to restructure things. And that's going to be a long time coming, I think. Yeah, so I think that's that is that is a challenge. I think that, as you have said before, veterinarians of all ages need to think about what are their ethical standards, what are their values, and be prepared for some of these situations. Even if you think it's never going to hit you, so that if you go to do something or the client says they can't pay or someone asks you to do something um, to inject a horse too close to a show or whatever the, the request is, that you have an answer prepared. Yes, right. You need to figure out where you stand and then kind of draw a line in the sand. Um, and, and we have, so obviously this is, I mean, I'm super passionate about this. So that's like the undercurrent of our entire practice. Um, and we have a line in the sand. I mean, we won't sign a health certificate if we haven't looked at the horse. Yeah. Like that's that's not a, a necessarily a huge deal, but it's our, you know, we just, and my associates feel very comfortable and they know that I'll support them saying like, we won't tell them we gave an influenza vaccination when we didn't. We just don't. A lot of people do, but we, and you know, is it really that harmful? I don't know, but it's, it's not the right thing to do. And if we just set a line in the sand that we don't do that stuff, then you never have to wonder. Right. right. Yeah. And it, it can be anything from taking x-rays for a horse sale within a certain amount of time before the sale to giving, like you said, a flu vaccine, a certain amount of time, or, you know, taking the owner's word that no, this horse doesn't have a temperature and, and looks fine. So write up my health certificate or cogging. Right. 
I mean, the, the Coggins that you have to have within a certain amount of time that, you know, people are always, I forgot to get my Coggins test done. Yeah. Oh, well. <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, you definitely need to decide where you want to be. And honestly, I think if, if as veterinarians, we, we decide that we want to do the right thing and play on the right side, we're going to be a lot more satisfied in our profession. Also, we'll, there'll be a lot less distress and a lot less sleepless nights. So what have you done and what do you suggest that veterinarians do ahead of facing these types of challenges? You know, I think, honestly, I think just being educated about ethics and what ethical decisions are and, you know, trying to kind of develop some skills for how to work through an ethical dilemma. Um, I, I personally, I mean, again, it's a slow boat to change. I think it's not going to change overnight. And I think one of the things we're really missing in the profession is education in ethics. So let me talk a little bit about that. Cause I've, I've like said, I was going to go do some degree in ethics for the last 15 years because of things that I saw in practice that bothered me or things that I refused to do. So I lost clients and, you know, I mean, we work with a lot of show horses and show barns and there's a, there's a handful of them I'll work for and the rest of them we don't like, and I don't want to. Um, and so it's bothered me for a long, long time. And I, I finally had, well, you probably know Jenny Meyer, who's an editor who I've worked with for years and is a good friend. And she's like, you need to write a book. <laughs> so, um, and I said, you know, I, I can't write, I, I, how, why would I write a book on this? I'm, I'm just a veterinarian. Like I just have these strong feelings. So she finally prodded me long enough that, um, I start, I just got online and started looking at programs and I, and there, there is no education for veterinarians really in ethics. And even when we go to talks at AAEP, I mean, I, I'm amazed when I go and I listen to some of these, these sessions where, really what they're doing is asking questions that are pretty well answered in the, the AVMA principles, you know, the guidelines that are there and they're pretty straightforward, but they don't go into any really more complicated or difficult, really hard to work through problems, nor do they give any um, sort of advice or techniques for how to do that. So long story short, I ended up connecting with the Nice Wanker Institute. And the first time I met with the advisor about the program, he's like, you know, this is a human clinical program. And I, and I, I'm not sure how much we have to offer you, but interestingly, we do have another veterinarian. It's the first year we've ever had two vets join. And I, I just looked at him. I said, well, you know what? I really don't have a lot of other options. <laughs> there is nothing for me. So I'll just sign up for a, a class and give it a shot. So that's what I did. And now I'm, you know, two years in um, and I absolutely love it. And there's so much that I've learned and there's so much that I can put to use. And it has actually made me, I think, a much better ver veterinarian. It's made me much more um, empathetic to my clients. It's made me much more able to see two sides of everything. That's a big thing that I'm learning. Um, so my goal in doing all this is really to start working on developing some curriculum, both for vet schools and for continuing education. That's more than just discussion about, you know, this and that, but is really, you know, formalized education. And, you know, you're, you have this, how do you break it down? You know how do you look at autonomy and beneficence and, you know, just the whole thing. Yeah. And it's, um, it's, it's really difficult, I think, especially for the young veterinarians when 
they have a different ethical standing than some of the people that maybe are hiring them. And absolutely conflict. Yes. And I think the younger veterinarians, I think a lot of, we need to listen to them. (laughs) I think a lot of them are coming out um, with better, you know, ideas about how things should be done. And those of us who've been out for a long time need to give them a chance to kind of speak up. Yeah, my, my daughter is a vet tech at a mixed animal practice, but she handles a lot of the equine because that's a, a strong background with her. And it's it's sad to hear her come home and talk about some of the stories, whether it's with a dog or a cat or a horse, where people either left a problem too long because they knew they couldn't afford it before they called the vet in, or they can't pay and, you know, there's there's issues of aftercare and it's, it's just sad. Yeah, it is. Yes. I mean, those are the ones that are, are really heartbreaking. The financial thing, I don't know how we're, we're ever going to be able to, you know, work through that. But quite honestly, when you start looking at bioethics and human medicine, and you look at all the questions about healthcare disparities and the people who can't get, I mean, it's the same there there it's that's just a, it's a huge problem that needs to be addressed i mean i i love nothing more than when someone tells me they have insurance on a horse <laughs> because it it just means we can do what what needs to be done and i don't have to make decisions based on what the people can afford which is great <laughs> let's pull through dr crab let's say that and let's use let's use one with a client let's say that you're on a property and you are faced with an ethical challenge Give us some steps, some thought processes, some actions that you take in order to work through how you handle that situation. Decra Veterinary Products is proud to sponsor Equimanagement's The Business of Practice podcast. Decra's equine product line includes Osphos, Clotonate Injection, Orthocon Vet IRAP 10 and 60, Osteocon PRP, Equidone Gel, Domperidone, the Vetivex line of parenteral fluids, Phycox EQ joint supplement, and a comprehensive line of topical dermatologic products. The recent addition of Zymeta Diaperone Injection further expands Decra's equine offerings. For more information about Decra's products, please visit decra-us.com. Okay, um, let's start with I think the trainer owner thing is a situation. So let's start with a situation where we get to the barn and, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll do a fairly easy one for me, which is an ulcer question, a, a, a horse with, you know, so the trainer says to me, I have this horse. So-and-so he started doing this. I want you to write me a prescription for compounded gastrogar or sorry, compounded omeprazole ranitidine. Um, so the first like working through this, the first question I'm going to ask is, is this trainer the appropriate surrogate? Is this the person I should be talking to? Because the trainer just wants to do what they want to do. They've done it all the time. They think it's the right thing. And I know that's not the right thing right away. I know that is not what this horse needs. What this horse needs is to be scoped and it needs to be treated appropriately based on what gets seen, which isn't, you know, financially overwhelming or anything like that. So that takes that out of the equation. So the first thing I'm going to do is say to the trainer, well, that's not necessarily the approach that I would recommend. And why don't we pull the owner in on this and talk to them about it? Because honestly, most owners or a lot of owners, I can't say most, but a lot of owners who really understand the implications of the decisions that they're making, if you take time to explain it to them, 
they do want to do what's best for the horse. And the trainers are under an enormous amount of pressure to just get things fixed and get there and win or whatever. So that's the first question I'm going to, and this is based on the four principles approach, which is the most basic bioethical approach to decision-making. So the first thing, who's the surrogate? We're going to talk to the owner. The second thing we're going to do is try to balance what we call beneficence and non-maleficence. So what are we going to do that's going to do the most good, which is the, the beneficence side, and not do harm, which is the non-maleficence side. So those are those are the first three of the four principles. So obviously the best thing for the horse is going to be to make a diagnosis, um, which is going to involve doing a scope. A scope is not that expensive. It's not that hard to do. If you're explaining that to the owner, most of the time they're going to choose the scope, right? And I'm also going to explain to them why I don't want to treat them with a medication that's not effective, that's been really proven not to be effective. And, you know, it's just out there. Um, and I'm going to explain to them what we're going to see in the stomach and what different areas can be affected. Um, and in, you know, doing that, you hope that the owner is going to be on your side. If they say, you know, I just want you to write this prescription anyway, that's, I, you know, rarely, I think, does that happen in those situations, if you really can explain it. Um, at the, so just since I brought up the four principles, the fourth principle is justice, which in human medicine is that all patients should have equal access to healthcare, and that addresses that healthcare disparity. And even though it sometimes feels like that shouldn't apply to our you know, equine practice so much, it really does because people are going to make a very different decision for a half a million dollar six-year-old jumper than they are for a 15-year-old 4-H horse. But I'm not going to present it to the owner any differently based on which horse that is. So that that's just a simple example using a very simple basic approach of how I would go through that. And really, again, I can't emphasize enough how important I think the surrogate decision maker is. I really think one of the most important things that we can do as veterinarians is involve the owners because the owners really do want to know what's happening with their horses and they're more likely to make a decision, a best interest decision. I have just what, a quick anecdote about that. This was okay. years ago um, when I, I saw a horse with a cellulitis and it was a, that it was a trainer owner situation thing. And I, left the, I made all my recommendations. I left the barn and I called the owner to explain everything to him. And it was a new barn that I hadn't worked in much. And the owner is on the phone and she's listening to all this. And she goes, Oh my gosh, I just have to tell you, thank you so much for calling me. I've had horses for 15 years and this is the first time I've ever talked to my veterinarian. Wow. Yeah. I was, I was like, and this was a long time ago. Are you kidding me? Like, Unbelievable. So I really make a point and some trainers, some, tra we don't work for some trainers because of this. They don't like it. I make a point. If there's an issue, I call the owner. I talk to the trainer and I also call the owner. Just tell them what we did, what we saw or what we think or keep them in the loop. Yeah. And that also has to do with sometimes the legality of getting paid, which we actually <laughs> Um, have have a podcast in the business of practice um, that uh, we are going to have about the legality of getting paid. And part of that is knowing who is responsible, because sometimes the trainers will authorize or not authorize something when they actually don't have a legal right to do that. Oh, 100 percent. Years and years and years ago, this is one of the 
probably things that's in the back of my brain that got me started in all this. I had a trainer have me inject a horse's hocks. I did. The owner was furious and I felt terrible. Right. And it was like a very early learning lesson to me. You know, I would have, I would be furious too. If someone did, you know, injected one of my horse's joints and I didn't know they were doing it, I would be livid. So yeah. Yeah. Well, in talking about ethics, are there any other topics for equine veterinarians that you think are important that we discuss today? Oh, I think there's just, there's so much on the horizon. There's so much that's going to come up. I don't even know where to start. I, I, the one that is, that I think I'm ruminating on a lot lately that is, um, I'd be interested actually in your perspective a little bit, because you're doing all these podcasts is the whole, um, compensation for veterinarians, that question. Um, because people do like being paid on production and it does make a lot of sense from a business standpoint, but it also just really opens the door to make decisions based on finances and not based on what the horse needs. Um, I presented the option to my associates of switching over to salary because I, and they didn't want that at all. Oh. <laughs> uh, so, cause they're, yeah, I, that's, I think that's a, a, just an interesting thing that I'm rolling around in my head and I don't, Oh, actually I do have another one. Um, I wish you could see me on this because I'm like waving my hands around. <laughs> but um, another issue that I really struggle with is the um, kickbacks from pharmaceutical companies. And there are so many products out there that the veterinarians get compensated for by recommending them. And I think that is completely not okay. And something needs to be done about it. It seems blatantly not okay. I what I do when I get those kickbacks that I do not solicit at all is I cash the checks and I hand it out to homeless people because it makes me feel better about it. <laughs> so, but I think that's something that we need to look at. Yeah. And that's, that's a, that's a point to be considered. I mean, there's just so much, you know, especially when we talk about the stresses and this is not just young veterinarians, this is veterinarians who've been in the industry the stresses that cause veterinarians to get to the point where they either leave practice or they consider doing something horrible like suicide. And Absolutely. The yeah. problem with vets is they have uh, not only the knowledge and the ability, but the, the means. Absolutely. The access. I just was, I was interested in that. I heard a little bit about the recent Merck, kind of the data that they came out about with the suicide stuff. And it's interesting. So because what everybody always talks about is work-life balance, which yes, is important. And the crippling student debt and low, low pay, that those are the two main reasons why veterinarians get to the point of extreme burnout or suicide. But it, it, it was interesting to me that kind of the way it was presented, um, it was a talk that I was attending is that it's not so much not getting paid enough, it's that you get paid adequately for what you do. Um, and I personally think that those two are surface issues and it's the moral distress issues are really the things that drive you to burnout and suicide. I think that's a bigger, and I think that's something we need to start looking at a lot. <laughs> and in, in the upcoming issue of Equimanagement Magazine, our cover story, um, it, it, the, the whole issue is about practice life. So we touch on a lot of issues that I, I think 
probably, like you said, are, are founded in some of this moral distress. But it goes through and, you know, there's interviews with veterinarians, young ones and old ones, but especially the younger vets on, you know, yes, we, we recognize we, we want to be an equine practice. We're willing to trade a, a, a beginning salary that's less than we would make if we went into companion animal because this is what we want to do. But we also expect mentoring and education so that we can become good enough vets to earn more money. And there was several people who said they didn't feel like that was happening and that internships and associates are just slave labor to pay the people who have felt like they have already paid their dues. Yeah, and that's really unfortunate. I mean, I think as older veterinarians, and I mean, I'm a practice owner, so I appreciate all the the financial concerns as well. And the reality is, you know, if you want to make a lot of money as a veterinarian, equine veterinarian, you have to probably own a big practice and you have to work your brains out. So there's, I mean, it's not a high paying profession. (laughs) Um, That's, that's a little bit the reality, unfortunately, but most people who do it, do it because they love it. And and you can make certainly a decent living. Um, And if, if you're making a decent living and you're doing what you love and you're not having to do things that you don't feel are right, then I think there's going to be a lot better satisfaction. Okay. Is there anything else? And and as you and I talked about before we started the podcast today, we could, you can write a book on this and we could talk about this all day, but just specifically for this, is there anything else that you think we should talk about today? I don't think so. Just, you know, look out for continuing education and, um, you know, curriculum coming through because I think that's the first thing that needs to happen. People need to get educated. Well, we sure do appreciate you joining us today, Dr. Crabb, for the Business of Practice podcast. And a big thanks to Decra Veterinary Products for sponsoring this podcast. And we invite our listeners to visit equimanagement.com or your favorite podcast network such as iTunes or SoundCloud or Stitcher to hear each episode of the Business of Practice. If you missed any episodes, you can go back and listen to them. And if you have any questions or suggestions for topics, you can send an email to me at the letter K Brown. That's K Brown at equinenetwork.com. The Business of Practice podcast is a production of the Equine Podcast Network, an entity of the Equine Network, LLC. 